Welcome to the Maximizing Outcomes Podcast, brought to you by Jim McGovern and the McGovern Wealth Group. Achieving bigger and better results with money, family, and business isn't about creating a bigger to-do list for yourself. It's about who can help you create results without you having to do all the work. Listen as we provide uncommon perspectives, powerful resources, and experienced people that can help you maximize outcomes in your life. Let's get to the show. Welcome to Maximizing Outcomes with Jim McGovern. The year has flown by. It's hard to believe the fourth quarter is here. I'm Patrice Sakura. Hey, Jim, did you get any vacation time in this year? I did get a little bit of vacation time. Patrice, thanks for asking. You know, my wife and I had a, had a baby back in the end of May, so that's we not decided a that is yeah, not a did, that's not a vacation. But we decided rather than going down to South Carolina, like we usually do, I think a flight in maybe twelve to fourteen hours in the car wasn't really <laughs> a wise choice. So we decided to go a little bit closer to home. So we went down to uh, St. Michael's, Maryland, Chesapeake Bay, had a great time, and of course, our daughter slept the entire way there and the entire way back. So we picked the perfect that. location. That is a good baby when they sleep. Love it. Love it. But now tell us about your guest today and his thoughts about the rest of the year for the economy. Yeah, we have a great guest lined up for today. We have Mike Trudell, who is a chartered financial analyst. Uh, He also has a law degree, and he is with BlackRock. He is a global macro strategist for the Global Allocation Selects team. And he's going to join us today to discuss the state of the economy and the financial markets. So with that, Mike, welcome to the show. Jim and Patrice, thanks so much for having me on. And uh, Jim, congratulations on becoming a dad. All right. Thank you very much. Well, let's start with uh, big picture. Let's let's talk about inflation a little bit, talk about interest rates. And uh, if we look back, you know, the Fed started raising interest rates back in March of 2022, and they were trying to you know, bring inflation under control. But since that time, we've seen historic increases in rates, and yet the U.S. economy has not pushed into a recession. So why is that? Jim, there's a number of reasons for this, uh, some of which I, I think surprised a lot of uh, of Wall Street. You know, if you ask clients if they remember back maybe eight months ago, nine months ago, uh, even more recently, a lot of the financial press and a lot of the news media focused on the likelihood of recession for the U.S. in 2023. And we've uh, we've avoided it. Uh, our team thinks we're going to continue to avoid it. And, and there are really four primary reasons why, despite the most rapid interest rate increases since the early 1980s, the U.S. economy has been very, very resilient. Um, the first and most important that I think is is obvious in hindsight, but I, I think a lot of people just m- might have overlooked, is that the U.S. economy is much less cyclical than it was in the early 1980s. It's much more services-oriented rather than manufacturing-oriented. If we were able to show your clients a list of the top 10 companies in the S&P 500 by market cap back in the early 80s. You would have seen names like IBM. You would have seen names like ExxonMobil. You would have seen names like Apple and Microsoft still would have been in there. But but today, the point is, is if you look at the top 10 names in the S&P 500, most of them are tech-oriented. They're software companies. They're e-commerce companies. And those kind of companies tend to be much more service-oriented. In other words, their businesses are a lot less cyclical. Big industrial companies like GM and going way back, names like U.S. Steel, which has come back in the news because it's in uh, it's a target of a, of a takeover. The point being, those kind of companies tend to spend a lot more money on inventory 
and they're just a lot more exposed to a rapid raise in interest rate increases. For people that are updating their software via Microsoft, they need that, and they're going to spend that money regardless. So I think the, the, the key point is a lot of the businesses in the S&P 500, their business models and their earnings and their cash flows are just um, – they're just not as interest rate sensitive. This, the other really important point is for a lot of those companies in the S&P, you know, names like Microsoft and Apple, they don't even need to borrow. Their cash flow is so strong, they really don't rely on the bond market very much for financing. And so as a result, you know, you had this big increase in rates and, you know, it really hasn't impacted their day-to-day, -day, their operations. Second big reason is that we've done a massive amount of fiscal spending. Uh, in the past several years as a result of, to the, of, of the pandemic. And in many ways, the fiscal spend is offsetting the impact that higher rates would have otherwise had. Now, there may be some long-term consequences of this. When we look out you know, into 2024 and beyond, debt as a percentage of GDP for the US economy is going to exceed 5%. So we spent a lot of money during the pandemic. We needed to because the economy was in lockdown. I'm one person that would be in the camp to say, you know, some of the more recent spending that we've been doing after we came out of the pandemic wasn't as necessary. But what that is doing is that is help helping keep the economy strong, um, but it's really offsetting a lot of the impact that really aggressive monetary policy otherwise would have had in the economy. But last couple of points I think that are also important. The unemployment rate in the United States is very, very low. Now, there are a lot of folks out there that – me feel that the economy is, I guess I would say, suboptimal. A lot of folks still worried about inflation. Prices remain elevated. But when we look at unemployment at 3.5%, that's at one of the lowest levels since the late 1960s. As a matter of fact, I'd make the case that it was even lower because back in the late 1960s, one of the reasons why the unemployment rate was so low is because of the Vietnam War. Guys were getting drafted to go to fight. So you know, in terms of job market, rarely has it been healthier. And this is also important because what the data has shown is when Americans uh, are employed, they tend to spend that money. And by spending money, that keeps GDP positive. 70% of US GDP is consumption. And so, uh, you know, as people continue to work hard, um, even in an environment where prices haven't been low, you know, they tend to they tend to spend that money. Last but not least, by our estimates, there is still almost 1.4 trillion in inflation-adjusted excess savings. Again, this was money that was handed out during the pandemic that people saved rather than spent. That serves as dry powder to help keep the economy going. So, you know, when you look at all these factors. It, it is a reason why uh, GDP came in, you know, over two, two and change for Q2. Uh, the revised numbers are going to come out later this week, but we don't think there's going to be a big change in that. Yeah, that just surprised a lot of folks. Um, as we get into Q3, we think real GDP is going to hit 1.5%. And on a, on a nominal basis, if you uh, also add in the impact of inflation, GDP is going to be 5%. I mean, that is and with 3.5% unemployment, that is very, very far from being in recession territory. So that view and uh, that that take on the economy in terms of where we're at is going to be influential in terms of you know how we are managing money for clients, where we're putting money, money to work, and, and where we're being a little bit more cautious. So the goal of the Fed through all this was they were, you know, all the rhetoric was we, they want to try and create a soft landing. 
And you know, they wanted inflation rates to drop, but at the same time, they wanted to try to avoid tipping us into a into a recession. And so far, they've been able to pull this off. But do you think that the US can continue to avoid a recession, or do you think the recession is inevitable? You know, we're of the view that the Fed has a pretty decent shot here. History is not on the Fed side. I'll start with that. Historically, the Fed when they've gone into rate hiking mode, they have struggled to be able to contain inflation and not tip the U.S. economy into recession. The most dangerous words in just about any endeavor, including finances, this time may be different, but, <laughs> but this may, truly may be different. And again, what is different about it is the fact that the economy that they're looking to slow is not a manufacturing economy. It's an information economy. It's a services-oriented economy. And so as a result, you know, they've got they've got a pretty decent chance. You know, another important factor that I think people should keep in mind is, you know, a lot of Americans, a lot of your listeners, you know, three years ago when mortgage rates were, you know, 3%, 3 and change, a lot of us went and refinanced our mortgages. A lot of corporations did something similar. They termed out their debt. In other words, when long-term rates were low, and I know this sounds amazing, but you go back to the end of 2019, it's September 2019, the yield on the 10-year treasury bottomed out at 31 basis points. As of today, it's 4.31%, you know, 431 basis points. So it was really low. So what a lot of these companies did is they said, oh, we're going to, you know, our, our long-term debt, we're going we're gonna to issue long-term debt and pay sub 1%. And so the point is, as the Fed has raised short-term rates, you know, that borrowing was already done. These corporations haven't been borrowing at these higher rates. So, you know, our view is that, you know, they've got a pretty decent chance. And the good news for the Fed is that the most recent inflation data that's come out the past couple of months, and we'll have more coming out shortly, is that while still elevated, that inflation has been decelerating. And we think the Fed is going to use that as a guide or at least an indication that a lot of the work that they started doing last year. And remember, when they were raising rates, they were doing they were raising rates at levels we hadn't seen. The last 75 basis point increase by the Federal Reserve prior to this most recent cycle was in 1994. Hmm, many right? months ago. It was many a long, long time ago. So I guess the, what I, how I would describe this to you is that we think that the circumstances with which the Fed was operating when they started raising those rates and the changes that have occurred inside the U.S. economy really give the Fed a pretty decent chance to pull this off. And so that's why we are we're, we remain cautiously optimistic. We think that that this is going to end up from an economic standpoint being OK without people without mass layoffs hitting the economy. One thing you mentioned, Mike, was that uh, you know consumer spending is seventy percent of GDP, mm -hmm. and I think a lot of folks can resonate with that. They say, "Okay, I've got a job, I've got some cash in the bank, and you know you tend to spend more money when when those two things are are going well for you." But if you're unemployed and your your savings is dwindling, you're definitely going to spend less money. Uh, but if we look at you know other parts, other indicators of this, and we think about corporations and the fact that a lot of these companies, you know, their inventory has been dwindling. That's how how does a uh, corporate restocking of inventory uh, contribute to positive growth in GDP? So that's a great question. So what's interesting about the second quarter GDP numbers? Not only were they strong, but inventory was getting, as you mentioned, was getting destocked. And so what that means is, in future quarters, that inventory has got to get rebuilt. 
So the way the GDP accounting works is as that inventory does get rebuilt, it's considered positive GDP. It's positive economic growth. It was, it was a contribution to overall economic benefits. So the, the simple point being is, you know, as we're getting ready for Q3 and Q4 here, the inventory destocking that really took place, a lot of it in the second quarter has got to get replenished. And so that's why we believe, you know, when these GDP numbers come out for the second half of this year, in real terms, they're going to be positive. In nominal terms, again, remembering that inflation is still hovering at three and a half percent, you know, it, it, it's going to be some some pretty decent numbers, and that should have a pretty good impact on U.S. corporate earnings. And as I know you know, and a lot of our listeners know, the single biggest thing that moves equity markets is how profits are doing, how earnings are doing. And so I think the good news is for a lot of the S&P 500, there's some cushion that they're going to have as we move toward the back half of the year, which should also be helpful. Perfect. And I want to touch a little bit more on on earnings in just a couple of minutes, but um, let, let's shift gears and talk about the financial markets. And you know, a lot of folks, 2022 is still in very recent memory and people saw double digit declines in almost every major stock and bond in, index worldwide. But so far in 2023, U.S. stock indexes in particular have had a nice sharp rally. Um, but it doesn't really tell the full story. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of folks say, "Oh, okay, the S and P is up, uh, therefore, you know, every holding I have should be up." And it's not always the case. Uh, so, what what's been the primary driver of the positive performance uh, that we've seen in these broader market indexes, such as the S and P 500? Well, I should start by by state saying, and you know, some of this is obvious. You know, twenty twenty three, at least so far, has been a lot better than twenty twenty two. Twenty twenty two was one of the roughest years, I think, for a lot of us that have been in the business. Not as bad as two thousand and eight when we had the financial crisis. I, I think for many, but a, a lot of folks might have forgotten that in, in two thousand and eight, certain parts of the bond market, like Treasuries, actually did very well. What was horrible about twenty twenty two is you couldn't find an asset class that did well. Stock, everything did poorly. Stocks, bonds, treasuries. You know, it was really just a, a very, very difficult year. And the reason why it was so tough was because we were in, a, in an environment, like we kind of alluded to a little bit earlier, where the Fed was raising interest rates much more rapidly than anything that we had seen really in the past 50 years. And that makes people feel uncomfortable. It makes people feel uncomfortable because they don't know exactly where it's going to stop. And when you don't know how high rates are going to go, you know, for people that do do rely on some variable interest rate credit, makes it very difficult to budget. For investors trying to value certain securities, whether they be stocks or bonds, they don't know what discount rate to apply because they don't know when the ceiling is going to get hit. So that led to a lot of volatility last year, a lot of down months. And as we got into 2023, even though the Fed continues to raise rates and may even have one, possibly even two more hikes to go, what investors got comfortable with was we were getting close to the end of the cycle. Our personal view is the Fed doesn't need to do any more work. Inflation at this point is going to continue to come down on its own. may not be a straight line, but the direction is is definitely uh, disinflationary rather than inflationary. In 2023, what's interesting, and you know, uh, the U.S. markets, well, I should say this, bonds have pretty much been flat, at least when we look at government bonds. If we look at the ag, it's pretty much flat year to date. Some parts of fixed income, like high yield, have modest gains. Equity markets have been led by the U.S., Europe, Japan, a little bit lower. China's been a different different story. Maybe we'll have some time to talk about China during the call. 
But in the U.S., what's been interesting is it, the, the market rally year to date has really been determined by a small handful of large cap tech stocks. Uh, these are names like NVIDIA, Microsoft, Amazon, Apple, Tesla. And a lot of their outperformance has been driven by, you know, huge advancements or expected advancements in artificial intelligence, AI. And so what's happened is you've had seven or eight names really be responsible for roughly half of the year-to-date gains in the S&P 500. The other 493 stocks are doing okay. Some are down, some are up, but it's been an average year for the average stock in the United States. It's been an exceptional year for what a lot of market participants have been calling the Magnificent Seven. And what that does is it gives investors the perception that the overall stock market is having a heck of a bang up year when really it's a small handful of names that have had an unusually strong year. Good news for this is in our view, there are a lot of pretty decent values to be had in other areas of equity in places like energy, some of the industrial companies, healthcare uh, is an area that we really like. One of the reasons why we really like healthcare is because it's our view that while we will avoid recession, economic growth is probably going to continue to decelerate on a going forward basis. And areas like healthcare really have very, very consistent earning streams. Again, this is the services oriented part of the economy. It's not the interest rate sensitive part of the economy. So when we're looking at places to be and where we think you know you can get some outperformances as we as we head toward the latter months of 2023, those are some of the places that we're uh, we're most interested in. So you mentioned a little while ago that uh, you know companies are, are valued off of their earnings, mm-hmm. and it's not just their earnings as it's released, but it's also their expectations for earnings in the future. So can you spend just a couple minutes talking about what happened with earnings last year and how things have fared so far this year and and what expectations are moving forward? So last year, there was, I think from a lot of folks, a lot of CFOs and CEOs that were doing earnings calls, you know, as they were doing those calls, there were two things happening. First of all, their margins were under a lot of pressure because some of these companies, especially smaller cap companies, were struggling to pass off higher input costs to their customers. And as a result, their profit margins were, were coming under pressure. And we started to see this, in, in especially in more cyclical areas like industrials, industrial companies, they just couldn't pass on the higher costs that, that they were enduring from higher energy costs onto their consumers. It hurt their earnings. And with the rate outlook, as we said earlier, still very uncertain last year as, as the Fed was raising rates very interesting, very rapidly. They, they really had a hard time uh, providing Wall Street analysts with decent estimates of what their earnings were going to be this year. What's changed is that even for many of those CEOs and CFOs that also assumed that the U.S. economy was going to go into recession this year, they were, they were pleasantly surprised. They were pleasantly surprised with an economy that's been more resilient than a lot of people have given it credit for. And many of these same companies have been reluctant uh, to lay off workers, knowing how hard it was to find good help the past couple of years. So those things have all combined to kind of get us to a spot where we think, you know, as we're, as we're moving into ne- the end of this year and next year, uh, and we mentioned the fact that for many companies in the U.S., you know, we think that the the earnings outlook for them is not going to be nearly as negative as it had been in the recent past, partially because for some of these companies that are, again, involved in manufacturing, um, there is likely going to be some inventory restocking that's going to help them. 
And for the service-oriented guys, especially those in the tech space, we do think that AI does offer a lot of promise. It's where all the, you know, if you look at the R&D spending and where that's heading, so many of these companies are spending historic amounts on R&D. That is going to result in long-term profits for many of them. And we, we, want, we want to be a part of that. So I want to spend a little bit of time talking about uh, international markets, but before we do that, one one last question on the U.S. and and this is with with inflation rates starting to fall, but interest rates remaining high, and there's even potential for them to go higher. How does that impact the stock market as a whole? And are there any portions of the economy that you think warrant additional caution if if rates continue to climb and, and interest rate maybe doesn't come? Or, I'm sorry, if, uh, inflation doesn't come down as fast as the Fed would like. Well, to us, the strategy that we've been employing, and I think we're going to continue to do this, is there are still parts of the economy that are interest rate sensitive. And it's those areas of the economy that we want to de-emphasize. What would be an interest rate sensitive part of the economy? Well, something like regional banks. So many on the call may remember, you know, we had uh, some issues with some of the uh, regional banks in the U.S. back in March, starting with Silicon Valley Bank. You know, for a lot of these regional banks, when when short-term interest rates rise very rapidly and long-term rates really don't move very much, it really hurts their profit potential right? because they want to borrow short and lend long and they want to make their profits on the spread between long and short-term rates. Inverted yield curves, in other words, an environment where short-term rates are higher than long-term rates is, is a, just a difficult environment for regional banks to make money on. So for us, our view is that a, a lot of those regional banks are probably going to continue to have difficulty. It doesn't necessarily mean that it will re- result in a banking crisis like we saw in 2008. That was a very different environment. The crisis in 2008 was one caused by credit concerns. In other words, banks lent money uh, a lot of times to consumers, homeowners that didn't have an ability to repay. When we look at bank balance sheets today, the biggest immediate risk is not that it's not credit related issues. As we said, a lot of corporate America, a lot of households, states and municipalities, the balance sheets are in great shape. The issue is just short term profitability. And so for us, we we just don't want to have a lot of exposure to the regional banking sector. The the big cap names will probably be fine. We don't think they're going to make a ton of money. So we're, we're underweight financials generally, but really underweight those regional banks in another area that we just think is going to have some challenges going forward is going to be portions of the real estate market. Now, I want to be very careful here. I'm not talking about residential real estate. We think residential real estate is actually in the United States is in a pretty good spot. There's not a lot of transactions being done with mortgages at 7.3%, but the equity in people's homes is staying high. What I'm talking about is the commercial real estate segment. And the reason why we think commercial real estate is likely to remain under pressure is two reasons. Number one, they tend to borrow from regional banks. And because of the interest rate environment, those regional banks are just not going to be able to extend credit like they've done in the past. And number two, we think corporate demand for real estate right now is not really high because of the long-lasting impacts of the pandemic. You know, When we talk to corporate CFOs, they're just not interested in adding square footage. Because you know they have a lot of employees that are still working from home one, two, maybe three days a week. Where they're spending the money is on cybersecurity because they need to. Because on any given day, you know, a hack to their system could be the end of their business. So they need to spend that money on cybersecurity. They don't need to sp- spend it on square footage. So for us, 
you know, we would really rather focus on enterprise software as an investment because we just think those cash flows are going to remain stronger rather than commercial real estate. We just don't think corporate renters are just going to need that much more square footage in the short term. Let's shift gears and talk about the economic picture outside of the US. Uh, are things looking as encouraging around the world or do you think there's uh, some unique risks, uh, for example, in Europe or China? You know, when we came into the year, we were a little bit more optimistic on the rest of the world. And the reason for that was that China and Japan, uh, they had a very delayed exit from COVID. And 2023 was was supposed to be the year that they came out of COVID. And we anticipated, because the global economy is more closely linked than it's probably ever been in its history, that you know China and Japan were going to see big increases in economic growth like the US and Europe and the UK saw in 2021. And for a whole host of reasons, particularly in China, it didn't happen. I mean, the re- primary reason why China's really struggled to, to come out of COVID with strong economic growth is that ha- unlike the United States, they do have challenges with their residential real estate sec- segment. It's been overbuilt. It had been oversupplied for years. It had been government policy really to subsidize a lot of that segment of its economy. And now that segment of the Chinese economy is very indebted. And the current regime in China doesn't want to go back to reinflating that bubble. The challenge that the Chinese are having is that Residential real estate makes up about 30% of China, or I should say, real estate in China makes up 30% of GDP. It's a massive number. When we look at household wealth in China, about 70% is tied to residential real estate, a much bigger percentage in the United States where US investors tend to be more diversified, not only in their homes, but their mutual fund investment stocks and bonds, 401ks, et cetera. And China is a very real estate oriented market when it comes to investing. And then last but not least, if you look at the collateral of the banks, about 40% of the collateral is backed by residential real estate. So if the residential real estate market is just having a a tough go and the central government in China isn't providing it the, the support that it has in the past, just making it harder for that economy to get back on its footing. And that's all occurring while, as we said, because central banks have been raising rates, economic growth in the U.S., and other parts of the world is still positive, but it's decelerating. You know, China's trying to export into you know a world where you know growth is slowing, so it's causing challenges. Europe, interestingly enough, the, the the thing is, is when we invest, we're buying investing in companies whose shares trade in the public exchanges, in London, in in Frankfurt, in Paris. And the interesting thing is when you look under the hood at a lot of European companies, and I'm talking about their big auto manufacturers like Mercedes-Benz or some of their luxury goods makers, whether it's you know Louis Vuitton or Richemont, 30, 40, 50% of their revenues come from China. Much higher percentage than US corporations, which are also global, but for a lot of our companies, a much higher percentage of their revenue just comes from at home, comes from the US. But for a lot of European multinationals, they they just get a disproportion of of revenue out of the Far East. And so as a result, again, as we described, with with China's economy uh, having a tough slog and with consumers in China not feeling confident, with youth unemployment north of 20 percent, we just felt that some of these other areas in the world, at least from a a stock standpoint, uh, earnings in some of these places were likely to be less resilient than the U.S. One last point. If you, if you look at these economies from a sector basis, they also tend to have much lower mega cap tech names, software names, e-commerce names. You know, who is the Amazon of Europe? Who's the Microsoft of Europe? Who's the Tesla of Europe? You know, we, we don't know. 
the largest market cap company in Europe is is Louis Vuitton. It's it's a hand goods manufacturer. It's a very different business model. And so for us, we just feel in the environment that we're in, we do have exposures to certain names around the world that we continue to like. But generally speaking, I would just tell you that we tend to right now uh, own a little bit more in the U.S. than we when we do overseas relative to benchmarks. Let's talk about bonds for a little bit because historically, this asset class, you know, folks have used to add stability to their portfolio, or maybe they were looking for stability and they wanted some cash flow. But last year, I mean, bonds were suffering losses really felt more like stock market losses. So what what's in store for bonds? I mean, one of the questions I get from investors is, you know, when I know when stocks go down, when we're talking about broad stock market indexes, they go down, we know what recoveries tend to look like, uh, but they're a little bit less familiar with recoveries in the bond market. So can you give us some outlook on, um, first of what's happened with bonds in the past and, and what investors could expect moving forward? There was a book we read in high school. I think it was Charles Dickens, and it was A Tale of Two Cities. And the first line was, it was the best of times, and it was the worst of times. And he was referring to the economic environment in London versus Paris when he wrote the book. And from right now, for the bond market, it's very similar. It's simultaneously the best of times and potentially the worst. It's not, not the worst of times. Last year was the worst of times. What bond investors are concerned about is that the Fed might not have completely finished raising interest rates. And we're of that camp. So in our portfolios right now, we're still underweight duration. Duration is a measure of interest rate sensitivity. And so because we think that the Fed probably has at least one, if not two more turns of the Fed funds rate, we just want to be a little bit more patient before we jump into fixed income. The second thing, as you mentioned, for a lot of clients, after the financial crisis, bonds were a very good ballast in a diversified portfolio. It didn't provide a lot of income, but what they were really good at on days that the stock market went down, bond prices tended to go up. In other words, in financial parlance, we would call that it was non-correlated. Well, an interesting thing happened once inflation in the United States started to come back at the highest rates we've seen since the 1980s. All of a sudden, bond prices and stock prices started to go down together. In other words, they were correlated, not non-correlated. In our view, we think inflation, as we said earlier, is going to continue to go down, but it's likely going to be an inconsistent path downward. And so our view is that bonds are unlikely to be as reliable of a hedge to stock market risk as they have been in the past. We still think clients should own some bonds for diversification purposes and for income, but it's just not going to, we just don't think government bonds are going to be as reliable to to have a positive rate of return on days when stocks go down. So why would you own bonds? The reason why we think investors should still own bonds is because for the first time in a long time, you're actually getting paid to own them. Is 4.3% a reasonable rate on the 10-year treasury? I would say uh, it's pretty decent. You know, if I were going to buy them, I'd, I'd like to see the rate probably closer to four eight or four nine, or I, I feel like I'm getting a good deal with inflation at three and change and coming down. But what I would also say, by the same token, is if you look at the investment grade market, you know, we can buy investment grade commercial paper, which is very short maturity, it's six to nine months, has almost zero default risk. It's paying a six and a quarter percent. High yield is paying us over eight and a half. Believe it or not, there are some countries, emerging market countries, where their government bonds are paying us somewhere between 9 and 11%. And in a lot of those economies, their central banks are actually cutting interest rates. 
So I would just say, if I'm an investor and I'm looking to build a diversified portfolio for the first time in many years, when you look at the 60-40 portfolio, the 40% on the bond side can actually you know, carry its own weight. We're just not ready to go overweight the asset class yet because we think there are a couple of more interest rate hikes that we may have. In our view, one, possibly two. We don't think the Fed should do any more. But the point being, you, you can now build a diversified portfolio where you get multiple sources of return. Whereas, as we talked about a little bit earlier, you know, back in 2019, we would look at the bond market and you'd struggle to get yields of 1%. High yield back then paid less than 4%. And, and those are, uh, as many of your listeners know, probably the, the lower quality or some of the lowest quality corporate bonds that, that can be purchased. So it wasn't a really good deal. So for us, we like the asset class. And there's going to come a time, we think, over the next 18 to 24 months where people are going to be glad that they own bonds. They're going to like the income because at some point the Fed will will pivot away from raising rates just to maintaining rates. And then at some point, ultimately in the future, they'll start cutting those rates. And so when they do, that's when you can start to get some price appreciation from bonds. In the short term, we think a lot of clients' returns are going to come from the income. But further out in the future, there's also the very real possibility that you can get some capital appreciation from fixed income. We just don't think that that's going to happen between now and the end of the year. What, what about bonds from you know around the world? We look at like emerging market bonds. Um, have we seen inflation starting to come down in, in some of those markets? And uh, you know, what, what's happened to bond prices in, in markets like that? So it's very, the outcomes are very, very different. So the one thing about emerging market debt is that it's not a, a homogenous asset class, although in the ETFs, it's treated that way. So in EM, there are some countries, for example, that are oil exporters and oil importers. They can have very, very different results based on you know, how, how oil prices move. There are some EM countries that are much more dependent, uh, their exports are much more dependent on the United States there are others that are more dependent on China. So there are a number of countries in the emerging world where we like right now. And, and one that I'll just highlight briefly is we like Mexico. And one of the reasons we like Mexico is, and we said at the outset, we think that the US is going to avoid recession. I think there's a really good chance we're going to avoid recession. Well, 80% of Mexico's exports go to the United States. So if the US avoids recession, it's a really high chance that Mexico is going to avoid recession. Mexico also gets a lot of their revenue from oil prices. Now, as many of your listeners have probably probably realized, you know, oil prices have ticked up here a little bit as a lot of the producing companies have curtailed supply. A lot of the OPEC countries have cut production. If you look at WTI as of this morning, it's trading at around $79, $80 a barrel. Brent's at $85. That's an environment where oil producers can make some pretty good profits. If we look at Mexican 10-year paper, Unlike the United States, where we're yielding about 4.3%, in Mexico, those yields are much higher. They're closer to 9%. And so for us, you know, you do take on a little bit of currency risk if you want to own that Mexican paper, or you can hedge the currency back to USD and still get a higher rate than what you can get on, on US treasuries, but you've eliminated the currency risk. Those are different markets where we think there are opportunities to, to get higher yields that we can get domestically without taking a lot of risk on behalf of our clients. So, so those will be some markets that in, in this environment we think are interesting. Last point, people can debate whether we're going to have one rate hike or maybe two more. What's really not debatable is the Fed is much closer to the end of its hiking cycle than it is to the beginning. The reason why I bring that up is historically speaking, 
investors have been more willing to own emerging market bonds when the Fed is toward the end of a hiking cycle, ideally when it's starting to cut, than when it's raising rates. And the reason for that is the investors don't have to worry so much about currency risk. In other words, when the Fed is raising rates very rapidly, typically that leads to a strong dollar. That's what we saw last year. When the Fed has reached its peak in Fed funds rate, and we start to see those, and hopefully start to see those rate cuts, as I said, later on, uh, maybe late next year into 2025, that's an environment where people are much more want to own riskier assets because they're not worried about really tight policy or really str a strong dollar. So I, I would just simply say to you, you know, we're, we're at that point where we're almost at the end of the hiking cycle here in the United States. And again, a lot of these emerging market central banks have already started cutting rates. We think that's a pretty good backdrop for owning some of these EM bonds. Fantastic. Mike, we're just about out of time here. Uh, but I guess as, as you think about the end of 2023 and, and you think about 2024 and beyond, are there any major themes that you and your team are keeping an eye on? I would just say this, Jim, in closing, I, I think it's hard to predict, it's still a little bit early for us to predict 2024, but for the 2023, and we realize equity markets have given back a little bit in August. It's not a surprise. Seasonally, late August and September historically have been periods of, of weakness for, for US equity markets. There's a whole bunch of seasonal reasons for that. One of which being that a lot of traders on Wall Street are on vacation or there's just a, not a lot of liquidity because there's people taking holiday time. But if you said to us, you know, what do you, where do you think stocks are going to finish the year? You know, we would tell you uh, probably a little bit higher than they are at today. We've already had, a, as we said, you know, at least at the index level, a pretty decent year. So we're optimistic uh, as we head toward the back half of the year that there's still some returns to be had. As it re relates to bonds, you know, we already kind of mentioned the fact that, yeah, maybe we'll have one more hike, but we're really not that far away from the end of the cycle. And we're getting higher yields than we've gotten in a generation. So for us, you know, we're comfortable uh, being invested. We do realize that, again, next three or four weeks, there's often some turbulence around it. But as you go toward the back half of the year, we're optimistic that clients are going to hopefully see their investments produce a higher return for them. We get a little bit more return before the end of the year. Not quite done yet. So uh, we're, we're positive on that. Excellent. Well, Mike, thanks so much for coming on the show and, and sharing your insights. Uh, I know that you're a super busy guy, and I'm sure our audience can tell why. You got to keep your eye on all these different things. So uh, on behalf of all of us here at Maximizing Outcomes, thanks for coming on the show, Mike. Sure. Thanks for having me on. All right, Patrice, let me turn it back over to you. Well, Jim, before you do that, let me ask you, how can listeners reach you? Well, easiest way to reach me is to uh, just jump on our website, www.mcgovernwealth.com. Or you can always uh, shoot us an email, info at mcgovernwealth.com, and just tell us you listen to the show and you have some, a couple questions and we'll coordinate a time to talk. All right. Fantastic. Listeners, of course, follow or subscribe to this podcast to know when the latest episode is ready for you and please share with others. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for listening to the Maximizing Outcomes podcast brought to you by Jim McGovern and the McGovern Wealth Group. Be sure to follow the show to be notified when new episodes become available. To suggest a topic or guest for a future episode, or learn more about how we can help to maximize outcomes in your life, visit our website at www.mcgovernwealth.com. This podcast is intended for general public use and is for informational purposes only. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by Park Avenue Securities, Guardian, or McGovern Wealth Group, and opinions stated are their own. By providing this content, 
Park Avenue Securities, LLC, is not undertaking to provide investment advice or a recommendation for any specific individual or situation or to otherwise act in a fiduciary capacity. Please contact a financial representative for guidance and information that is specific to your individual situation. Guardian, its subsidiaries, agents, and employees do not provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. Consult your tax, legal, or accounting professional regarding your individual situation. Jim McGovern is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PAS. Securities products and advisory services offered through PAS. Member FINRA, SIPC. Financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America. Guardian, New York, New York. PAS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. McGovern Wealth Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. CA Insurance License Number. 0F67329 AR Insurance License Number 7119103 California Insurance License Number 0F67329 Arkansas Insurance License Number 7119103 Compliance Number 2023-160640 Expires September 2025